Motherboard, proudly brought to you by familyfriendlyhq.ie. I'm Avril Flynn and you're very welcome to season two of the Motherboard podcast. This podcast series features parents talking about the beautiful but often very hard work of raising little children today. So joining me in studio today is Geraldine Walsh. She runs the award-winning and fantastic Irish parenting and lifestyle blog Over Heaven's Hill and is a mum of two lovely girls, Allegra and Devon. Beautiful names, Geraldine. (laughs) And Geraldine, you're more than welcome. So today we're discussing something that is very close to my heart and I know to yours, which is the myth of the super mum. And I think one of the big thing is we put so much pressure on ourselves as mums to be perfect and there's so much outward pressure to have that kind of perfect image And it's all a bit of rubbish. Well, I certainly feel it is anyway. And this week, so April 29th to April 5th, is Maternal Mental Health Awareness Week. And you actually, there's a slight bit about it, but not enough um, awareness about it. And the theme this year um, from the Blue Dot campaign is um, the hashtag Making Over Motherhood. And this is about highlighting and talking about the things that us mothers often hide. And Geraldine, this is something you feel very strongly about as well, and um, that we need to kind of make over this perfect image of motherhood. What do you think about the the theme for a start and how it relates to to you? Yeah, absolutely. I think the theme is is perfect because we tend to go into motherhood and parenthood with this idea as to how it's all going to be. We kind of think, oh, yeah, kids are going to be great, going to be lovely, great little outfits we can pop on them. and Little dolls. Little dolls, yeah. It doesn't work out like that at all. Like, and tell me about your journey. So you have two beautiful girls. I do. I have Allegra, who's five, and Devon, who is two um, in May. Um, so cute, they're lovely ages. <laughs> yeah, and they're good friends, which is good. They've got sometimes that I'm sure they yeah. kill each other. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but it wasn't the straightforward, picture perfect thing. Have kids, and everything is all rosy. It was, it was a challenge. It definitely wasn't what I expected it to be. So when Allegra was born in 2013, um, I had six months maternity leave, and. It was it was the winter months as well, which didn't help. So I kind of didn't get to go out an awful lot with the rain and and the weather, and I sort of felt secluded in those and isolated, first, and very isolated in those first few months. And I didn't have a huge amount of support surrounding me either, um, and I felt like I had to. She was my first child, so I felt like I had to be this amazing mum. Um, and Geraldine, were you aware when you were pregnant or when you had it, was maternal mental health something that was highlighted to you by your caregivers or had you any experience kind of before you had your daughter that that was something to think about or consider? Not in the slightest. I mean, it wasn't in my mind frame at all. And after Allegra, um, I think mostly with the isolation, I did uh, suffer mild postnatal depression after she was born. It was about three months um, after she was born, I felt this um, depression sort of set in. But I had um, an emergency C-section on Allegra, which is very scary. Very. And I hadn't planned for it at all. I mean, I literally said that's not going to happen to me. And I just literally did not even read a single sentence about what I think a C-section again, would when be like. We ha- when we're pregnant, I think some people, a lot of women can have a picture perfect mm. image of what giving birth will be. 
Um, yeah, you and, have your birth plan, so yeah. you expect that's that's the way it's going to be. But no, babies have completely other ideas. And they kind of decide. Yes, absolutely. So, and that's a shock. Like, that's a shock when you're, I always think it's really hard. Like, I always call people who have sections mama warriors because it's one of the only major abdominal operations. In fact, the only major abdominal mm-hmm. operation, only major operation that you're handed a newborn. So you're expected to c- recover from this huge surgery. Um, and you're handed a little person and said, no, go look after them and recover and not be able to leave your house or drive for six weeks or lift anything. It's really, exactly. really hard. It's, it's, it feels impossible, I'll be honest with you. I wanted to breastfeed after Allegra was born and I straight up in the hospital gave up. I said, no, I'm not doing it. I just I had so many emotions flowing through me that I just I couldn't add another thing to to my load, you know. Um, so I, I've always regretted not even trying to breastfeed. Well, I'm just going to stop right there. Don't regret it. You're you're an amazing mum and don't ever (laughs) beat yourself with that stick. Absolutely not. You're fantastic. And you were doing your absolute best. It was something that I wanted to do, but, you know, with the pain, I mean, it was completely unexpected having a C-section. So that pain, um, I mean, I never forget not being able to it was the next morning after Allegra was you born and trying to, trying to sit up, mm. trying to, you know, the midwife was asking me to just get off the bed for a minute. And, oh, my God, the searing pain was unreal. I couldn't couldn't get over it. So the recovery was a lot harder than I had ever expected. And on top of that, um, I didn't bond with Allegra. I, I had I didn't have that. You know, you, you, your baby's born, you expect to have this instant love. And I didn't have that. And I think that's one of the interesting myths. I mean, certainly as a midwife, it's one of the things I always say to the women in my care. Mm. Love can be instant. It can also grow over a long period of time. And both of those things are normal. But I think the image that is portrayed by pretty much everyone is baby comes along. You have this overwhelming sense of love. And I think there's a lot of people that don't and they're just afraid to say it. Absolutely. And I mean, some of the statistics, the really scary thing when I was doing all of my research for this, and remember, I'm a midwife, I've, I've looked into this for years and years, is that there are no actual Irish statistics on postnatal depression, perinatal depression, rates of first time mums with it or anything. Like, there is just an absolute absence of information, which is scary. So I know we were both talking earlier about statistics. So the nearest and dearest would be the kind of NHS in the UK. So about 10 to 15 percent of new mothers is one, you know, thought, you know, from one study. Another one, it could be as high as 33 Mm percent have some sort of symptoms. I actually think that 33 percent, certainly from my own practice, to have a couple of the symptoms is is more kind of reasonable. But that's that's kind of terrifying. That's a third of it's quite high, very high. And I I certainly like definitely there is people cannot access the help that they need in your journey. So after you had your second daughter and things kind of took, you know, what got more difficult for you. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, Devon, I think my story with Devon really starts when I was pregnant. Um, so I was 10 weeks pregnant and I suffered a bleed and I genuinely was convinced I was losing her. And it was the most terrifying moment of my life. And um, it ended up being a subchorionic hematoma. So when I was in A&E, um, you know, the, the doctor was saying, was doing the scan, baby looked fine. And she did the scan and she was saying, yeah, baby, baby's okay. I'm not too sure why you're bleeding, but we'll get you back in a couple of weeks. 
And I said, so, you know, what's happening to me? I, I was I wanted an answer. I wanted to know when I was leaving that hospital, I wanted to know, is my baby OK? Am I losing my baby? And, I and nobody giving, can say that. No, there's no definitive answer. Mm. So um, I ended up. So you're in that kind of middle ground oh, of and that anxiety and worry must have been terrifying yeah, it was, for you. It was so intense. So I think that's where um, I started developing um, this anxiety. And I was on four weeks bed rest. It was just before Christmas. And I spent the rest of my entire pregnancy feeling as though I had to hold her in. And also trying to mother. And mother the, the three and a half year old exactly. at the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I couldn't, I couldn't necessarily, because I had the toddler as well, I couldn't um, focus on my pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So I didn't feel like I had bonded with my bump at all. I was just trying to keep my bump. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I had all the hospital appointments and everything was going OK as, as, as we were going along. And then um, I was scheduled for an elective C-section because of um, my previous history. Yeah. So when we when the when I was coming up to the month before Devon was born, the anxiety really took hold. I mean, I, I didn't know what was going on with me. I felt a fear. I felt this anxiety. I was having panic attacks. And I thought at the time that it was because I was apprehensive about the C-section mm-hmm. because I remembered my recovery from the first um, and, and how, how hard challenging that was. That was. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I was prepared for the C-section. So I was a bit confused. I was like, I know I'm going to have a C-section. I know this is what it's going to be like. I know I can handle it a lot better. And I was um, I was in a better headspace when it came to it. But I had this intense anxiety, which I feel came from um, the the bleed that I had and the, so the you've been carrying and, yeah along with carrying your pregnancy yeah. that building and I think mm. people forget you know anxiety is not just a worry anxiety mm. is not just going oh you know I'm a bit worried about that anxiety is literally strangulating yes um, yeah. I mean it makes you feel almost disabled yeah. with how like it's just there like a, a record constantly blaring in your ears and it's it's very very scary it completely takes over your whole life um i don't think there's a single s- uh, after devon was born was when the anxiety really hit um had so this, again you're home now two little people yeah well i had this odd sort of feeling when devon was born when, when devon was born for weeks after I had this intense euphoria, which I'd never felt before. It was absolutely incredible. I was on cloud nine. Mm. I mean, when I say I didn't bond with Allegra and I didn't have that instant connection with her, I had it with Devon. I had, and it was, it was because I felt like I, I had been losing her. So when she was born. The relief. Oh, the, yeah, it just was surging. So this euphoria was, it, sh- it kind of shook me because I felt so incredibly happy. And at the same time had this anxiety bubbling underneath that could strike at any moment. So when we got home, Barry took two weeks um, paternity leave, um, which we, we had some lovely days out. Barry's your Barry's my husband. husband yeah. yeah. He, he, we had some nice days out as a family. And that two weeks is really morning. nice as well. Yeah, like yeah, it was very important. Far too short, but it's, it's lovely to actually yeah. become a, a new family. It also took me quite a while to convince him to take the paternity leave, I'll be honest with you. Um, so those two weeks were okay. And then when he went back to work, uh, just the idea of not being able to cope, of being triggered with all of these different emotions that I couldn't understand or comprehend. Um, and Whereas I, everyone's expecting, you've had a baby, you should be delighted. Yeah. You know, and that's the, yeah. that's the 
thing that's being fed to mm. us. Tell me a little bit about you, you have this amazing lifestyle blog and your writing is so searingly honest and it's actually beautiful to read because it's so lovely to read something that I certainly um, have huge affinity to and it certainly kind of relates to my own journey a lot because um, you have you started out in um, kind of um, medical administration and as a medical librarian and you've moved into now writing kind of full time. Yeah, that was, <laughs> I I think Devon was about six months old when I decided to leave my career. Um, and do you I think that that was tied in with your recovery? Everything, and, yeah. yes, everything. Um, I think I overhauled my whole life uh, and I felt I needed to because I had the, the, the anxiety and the stress and the, 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 the pressure of feeling like I had to get better mm-hmm. um, for me and for the kids. Um, so my my I had been writing my blog since uh, 2016. So I'd started that because, you know, I, I wanted to write again. Essentially, that's why I wrote, started the blog. Um, and I started off the blog like a, a sort of general parenting style blog so I was doing you know the the days out um you know the the sort of general and were you bits. still symptomatic at that stage at the, no I had I know I was perfectly fine at that stage okay. I was happy out we had just moved to the countryside everything okay. sort of seemed like it was it was you know life was good you yeah. know and then I got pregnant with Devon and once the bleeds started um my whole concept of the blog changed and I started just writing so honestly and openly about what I was experiencing and how and I was feeling. what were your symptoms at that time? What what were the, it was the fear of of losing Devon um feeling as though I wasn't like my body wasn't working right. Yeah. Um, so it was a very physical manifestation yeah. of that kind of mental thing of not good enough. Not good enough, you yeah. know, and yeah, yeah and it, it is, it's such the language that's used around when you have, when you when you think you might lose your baby, the language mm. that's used around that, you do feel like your body is kind of failing you yeah. and there's that real mind and body connect. Did writing, was it was a cathartic for you it to was. kind of get everything out? Yeah, I mean, when I was writing about my my own personal experience, the amount of people that would come back to me and message me and say, thank you for writing this. This is I went through the same experience or they gave me their their history and said, you know, just do this and, you know, focus on yourself. You know, I got a lot of support from from people at a very hard time in my life and um, through the blog and through social media as well. And I know that that's the funny thing we were talking earlier, that you kind of are an introvert extrovert Um and that, you know, for some people reaching out, there are lots of different ways to reach out. And mm. um, for you, when did you really think I need to get help? Um, it was actually my sister and my mum who recognised that my behaviour was completely So was that off. quite soon after birth? It was birth. two weeks after okay. Devon was born. And what did yeah. your mum and your sister kind of see in you or recognise in you? They, well, my sister had suffered with postnatal depression, so she kind of understood the anxiety that I was going through. And um, my mum was just couldn't believe some of the behaviour that I was doing, the way I was talking to my daughter. Um, because so let's talk about some of the symptoms. I mean, there's the obvious ones, low mood that doesn't lift, mm-hmm. um, you know, feeling very down, feeling very hopeless, thoughts of self-harm and more more extreme harm or feeling that their harm is going to come to you. But there's also one that isn't really discussed, which is a kind of an anger or a rage, yeah. um, which is very common and I think often really, 
really missed. Like, mm. uh, it's more than a frustration. It's just you. Um, I was kind of describing it earlier as your candle is burnt down to such a knob. You're so exhausted. You're so tired. No matter what way you're feeding your baby, your baby's still feeding 24 seven and you've nothing left to give. And then if you also have other children, that's really, really challenging. And I think for people listening at home, that kind of anger and rage People feel it. I know I certainly did after yeah. Felix. Yeah, like I, I had, would. I had quite and, severe, and what about you, Geraldine? Yeah, it was quite severe, mm. I will admit. Um, and of course, the three and a half year old, she took pretty much the whole brunt of it, which, you know, just sends a searing guilt inside you when you think back on it. Um, it was, you know, it's over the littlest of things as well. You can just, you, you've essentially just flip out of the simplest of things like she wouldn't eat her breakfast or her lunch and I'd be shouting at her because I mean it doesn't matter she'll eat later you know but I for some reason I had this intense anger that I couldn't control um, which made it worse because, because I knew it was happening. Because then you have the whole guilt yeah. circle yeah. of you can't control it feel guilty and that you know leads into it. Yeah. So at what stage did you think okay so your mum and your sister have spoken to you. You think, OK, I actually recognise something there. And did you go to your GP? Did you go back to the hospital? What did you do? Um, I went to my GP. Uh, it was Devon's, uh, one of Devon's checkups. Um, I think, I actually think it was her two week checkup or something. I think she was about three weeks before I got an po- appointment. And I had been back at my GP for this. And I didn't get my GP. I got a locum. And I, she didn't actually ask me about how I was. Um so I, I I started the conversation with her and explained to her how I was feeling uh, that I had the anxiety um, felt very low felt like I wasn't Which coping all very, very very difficult stuff to say I was actually crying in her mm. office you know I couldn't I actually couldn't get the words out I felt so emotional um, and hurt and angry and upset about about how the first few weeks of my daughter's life was was playing out you know she's this tiny beautiful little thing and here's me suffering so badly not able to manage anything at all Um and she literally said one sentence to me and that was, oh, I suppose we can put you on a low dosage, which wasn't what I wanted. Um, I had been on medication before and it didn't agree with me. So I knew I didn't want to go on medication and that was my own personal choice. But there was no conversation whatsoever about any other route, any other support. Nothing else came from her at, at all. I left that office feeling so desolate and upset and scared, like there was no hope for me. Mm-hmm. So I remember going back to my mum's house and just crying, just just feeling like, how do I get out of this? Because I knew this wasn't baby blues. This wasn't, this was so much more. And at the same time, remember, I had this euphoria that I couldn't explain. And I only felt safe around Evan. I only felt... So you're glued to each other. Yeah. I mean, if I put her down or if she was down for a nap, I had this nervousness that was just mm-hmm. building on my shoulder. I would have... Um, as the and I think that will ring a lot of bells with people. Mm. And I think they're the more kind of very succinct things that people, you know, don't realise can actually be part of the postnatal depression or yeah. perinatal depression. And I mean, one of the things, one of the big stats and one of the big research things is that perinatal depression. So people that suffered anxiety and depression in their pregnancy Mm. are at a hugely increased risk of suffering with postnatal depression. And I know that rings true for you. And the thing is, in Ireland, 
there is no screening for it. And it is the look of the draw as to the healthcare provider you get. And I suppose the message I want to give is that if you feel that something is right, keep talking and keep asking because you then met somebody that was very compassionate. Yes, at Devon's six week check up, the public health nurse came out of the house and did her normal checks and everything, made sure everything was going okay with Devon and looked me straight in the eye. She was sitting on our sofa and she looked me straight in the eye and said, and how are you? And I, I was actually taken a bit aback because um, the public I health I actually shivers when you say that because yeah, it's such, yeah, such an hu- important question. Huge, huge. Just for someone to even look at me and to even recognise that I was there. And yeah, I just broke down just with her even asking me, how are you? I just, I... I I felt this intense relief that someone was going to listen to me. An acknowledgement and a recognition. Yeah, yeah. And I think she must have recognised something in me because um, the way she was looking at me is it was as if to say, I know there's something up. Same way my mum kind of looked yeah, at me. Yeah, but a safety and like you can tell Absolute me. Absolute safety, yeah. So I explained to her exactly how I was feeling um, and how everything was playing out for, for me with, with Devon. And she... I told her I didn't want to go on medication and what my GP had said. And she says, well, I'm going to give you a number and I'd very much like you to call them. Um, so she gave me the number for Nurture um, and I started counselling. And I, I I, think it was about, by the time I started the counselling, Devon was about three months old at this stage. Um, and I went to counselling uh, once a week and it was, it was very tough. I'm not going to lie, counselling's not for everybody and I'd never been to counselling before and it is, you know, it's a very emotional experience when you're going through this but I got an awful lot of tips and advice um, and support from my counsellor. Thank you so much for that, Geraldine. That's the end of part one, but don't go anywhere because in part two, we will be discussing Geraldine's husband's paternal postnatal depression, a thing I don't think a lot of people are aware of and the importance of support networks, whatever they are for you. Motherboard, proudly brought to you by familyfriendlyhq.ie. Welcome back to part two of the Motherboard podcast. Geraldine, we mums need to give ourselves a break sometimes. I think we can be our own worst enemy. We want to do more and be more. And I think in that, kind of, that's a self fulfilling prophecy of, of, of pressure. With regards to yourself, how did you step out of that and be able to mind yourself, take care of your own mental health and kind of move forward to a really positive recovery? Um, yeah, with great, with great difficulty. It, there's, there's a huge um, mental sort of... Effort, isn't it? It's, yeah, there's, there's, it takes so much effort. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, you kind of have to give yourself permission to let go of an awful lot of stuff. I think that's mum's life anyway, isn't it? It is, yeah. I mean, we live with guilt every single second of the day, I think. Um, but when it comes to suffering with something so huge um, that has taken over your life, you, I mean, I, I started doing mindfulness based on what the counsellor was saying. Um, and mindfulness, when I heard mindfulness, I thought that was meditation. Um, it's not. <laughs> it's absolutely not. It's, it's about... Taking a moment um, in your day and if it, no matter what is happening and appreciating what that moment is. So if I was in the midst of Allegra having a huge tantrum and Devon in the baby carrier crying incessantly and then the anxiety starting to bubble up inside me and feeling like I can't cope, I had to basically say to myself, it's okay to feel like this. 
it's okay to take all of this on board um, and acknowledge those feelings. Not, I wasn't trying to get rid of them. I wasn't trying to be positive and happy all the time because if I tried to do that, I would fall flat at the first hurdle. And that's kind of what we're trying to say with regards making over motherhood mm-hmm. in, in its essence is that to give yourself the permission to be open and honest and to not try and hide those feelings yeah. because we all have them. Yeah, and they're going to happen regardless. I mean, throughout your entire chi- child's life, you're going to have moments that you can't deal with or you don't want to deal with or they're so hard that you just want to run away. I read a great meme, half the time you want to hold your children forever and the other half you want to put them on eBay. I'm like, (laughs) I can totally agree with that. Absolutely. (laughs) So you, I mean, you've continued and you've written about it so beautifully and so honestly in your own blog. But within your recovery, it actually came to light that Barry, your husband, had also been suffering. It was actually something we didn't recognise. Um... You know, when you I mean, it's just not, is it? There's no, you don't think about it. You don't think about you don't actually think about dad. You don't, you know, you're so conscious of mum coming home with the baby and how her recovery. You know, we all say it takes a year to to recover from pregnancy and birth. It takes longer, if you ask me. Um, But, you know, so you're focused on mum. You're focused on getting her back to a state where she's happy and comfortable and and not in pain anymore. Um, And you're focusing on the baby. Um, who's growing up quicker than you could ever imagine. But you're not thinking about dad who's who's probably in the background trying to maintain everybody and keep everybody happy. So with Barry, um, he actually suffered a postnatal depression on Allegra. He basically, we, we didn't understand it until so you'd I almost suffered. Been, I know you've spoken about this kind of mirrored your symptoms, but he yes. was under the same pressures, although he yep. hadn't given birth, he'd had to watch you and was quite traumatised from all of that. Absolutely. So it actually fed back to the first, you know, having having Allegra yeah. and had continued with Devon. Yeah. So for when he was um, suffering with postnatal depression after Allegra, he had this um, kind of, it was a low mood Um and he basically wanted to stay indoors all the time. We call it the siege mentality. He just wanted to shut out of everything else. He wanted to shut out the whole world. Um, he would never listen to the news. He wouldn't read a newspaper. He didn't want to know anything negative that might encroach on our lives. So it was like a protective little bubble that he had created. We didn't recognise that as postnatal depression, but it was. And it was only after Devon was born and I had suffered so intensely with the anxiety and depression that we recognised a lot of my symptoms were quite similar to how he was managing and coping. So um, the more we sort of talked about it, um, the more we recognised you're actually going through something as well. Unfortunately, um, I don't know if it's because he's a man, there's a stigma but he has I mean, there's a huge stigma around mental health anyway. in essence. Yeah. But maternal mental health, most people are aware of yeah. in some respect, even yeah. if it isn't given the credence it should. But paternal mental health or the challenges, I think, can be written off by a lot of people I'll as, honest, oh, they, you know, pull yourself to get a, together and yeah, get on with it, which laughed, is terrible. They're, they're laughed at, you know, oh, he shouldn't be suffering like that or don't be ridiculous. That's a woman's thing. You know, you know, we just which is almost research, reverse misogyny. You know, it's, oh, exactly. it's you know, it it's it's yeah. crazy to think yeah. that, of course, that they're yeah. going through something. Mm. And how did Barry kind of reach out? I mean, that must have been a eureka moment when he actually realised that both of yeah. you were going through something so, yeah. you know, difficult. At the time I was going through counselling. So I had asked him, would you go through to counselling? And he said no. Um, he did want to come on medication. Um, he basically didn't 
feel as though he should go out for support and um, get help. Um, it was as though he kind of felt like as he was growing up as a kid, you you know, he always heard things like, oh, no crying, man up. And so he, that yeah, was they're sort the of messages still, that are that are sent out. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's still it's still ingrained in his mind. So um, I would talk to him about everything that I was learning um, and how to manage my anxiety. And my recovery was an awful lot quicker than his. Um, and he went to his GP eventually. And, you know, when I went to my GP, I'm crying in the office. And when he goes to his GP, he's not as open or honest about how he's feeling. He, w- he you know, he would explain I was suffering through anxiety and I had, um, you know, the moments that he would experience with um, the kids if he couldn't manage or cope um, as I would. And, um, you know, his doctor actually said to him, it sounds as though you're managing OK. Wow. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I'd love to see if he, if he wasn't doing so great. What exactly. Way be? So That's I, I felt like saying to him, go back to the office and just start crying, <laughs> you know, really emphasize what you're feeling, because I think he didn't necessarily open up as much as he should have. Um, but I think it says a lot for kind of the Irish healthcare system mm-hmm. and certainly as a caregiver I cringe when I hear stories like that mm-hmm. because it, you know the obligation is on the professional yeah. to recognise somebody that is struggling or in pain and they shouldn't have to you know yeah. break down totally or have mm-hmm. a total breakdown before they're able to reach out I mean to reach out for any help it takes huge bravery yeah. to be vulnerable is to be brave yeah. and you know well done Barry yeah the fact he even w- went into that office to talk takes such guts yeah yeah and um, so he walked away with with no support no advice literally no advice actually either there was there was no no nothing that you know other than your grand you seem to be you yeah, seem to be, be okay grand, yeah. yeah um so when he came home I was quite angry about it I'll be honest with you I was very angry that he didn't get any support I'm not whatsoever surprised. Um, now Barry didn't want to go on medication so he he had told that to his doctor but he also didn't get any advice whatsoever um so you know it, it kind of fell to us as a family to help him um which isn't easy I'll be honest especially when I was coming through the end of my own anxiety and feeling like uh, I was getting to the end of the tunnel, he was still stuck in the middle of it. And I, you know. And that's when kind of support networks mm. come in and are so vital. They yeah. don't necessarily have to be. I mean, I, I know that a lot of people, you know, get a huge amount out of, like, for example, mum and baby groups. Um, you know, the Lashley Kirkwood, you have fantastic groups for support. And I always say to people that that works for a lot of people, but for some people it doesn't. So your support network can be digital, can be, you know, an online support, can be your family. But as long as you, I mean, you're a support network to each other. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And with Barry, he doesn't have an awful lot of support, I'll be honest with you. And you wouldn't be a mass fan of kind of mum and baby groups for oh, yourself no. for the people <laughs> no. that work great but for yourself No I I have gone to one toddler group uh, once and I couldn't have run out quick enough um, It just I've, wasn't I've, for you No I have nothing against them I think they're absolutely fantastic and they do absolutely work for an awful lot of people As an introvert I find talking you know the small talk or even talking about the babies and Competitive mothering. Yeah, yeah, well, there is a bit of that as well. Um, I find that very difficult anyway. um, So I wouldn't put myself in that position, I'll be honest with you. 
Uh, so I only went once. I didn't go back again. <laughs> yeah, I'd be pretty much the same. I have a couple of great friends who are my support network, brilliant yeah. family who are my support network. Mm. And that's what works for me. Yeah. And I mean, certainly doing these podcasts and things are my way of having kind of a wider network. Mm. Um, but again, I would I'd be kind of terrified of 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 kind of the mom and baby groups. I find them um, emotionally draining, I'll be honest. I feel like I have to be on form um, and if something because I was suffering so badly with anxiety as well, if if Devin had started crying or had hit another child or something like that, I'd have lost it. I wouldn't have been able to cope. Um, there was one occasion where I had gone somewhere um, with my sister and I we had gone down for a coffee after and I felt such huge anxiety after it. I had to abandon my meal and run out with my with my baby um, and leave my sister there. And we had a huge fight over it because she couldn't understand what I was actually feeling at that moment. I should have been happy to have been. Um, it was actually the mother baby group that I'd gone to with her. Um, I should have been excited and happy to have this network to support me and to talk and to feel like I'm out of the house. Um, there's something more for me outside rather than just being home with the kids. Um, but I didn't feel like that at all because I was suffering so badly with that anxiety. So I had a massive anxiety attack. Um, Which is always great fun when you're out in public. Oh, God, absolutely. It's always exactly it's, what you want to happen. It's horrendous, yeah, absolutely horrendous. No, people look at you like you're losing. I mean, you are losing the plot effectively, but, you know, you don't want someone to... It's a very... It's a very private thing for it to be yeah. witnessed publicly yeah. can be very yeah. challenging. And you feel judged. You feel massively judged. I mean, I'm there bundling the baby into the buggy and panicking as I'm doing it and I'm sure someone was looking at me going what the hell's wrong with her but I was suffering so badly at the time mm. um, all I wanted to do was lie on the floor or rock myself on the floor and cry I was in a cafe couldn't do it <laughs> but that's exactly what I needed at that moment was to just hug myself and cry my heart out um, so how did you find the support and the support network? I mean, your recovery has been amazing. And I think it's really important to say at this stage as well, we've kind of spoken about there are lots of different ways yeah. to recover yes. and recovery is absolutely possible. It's hard. Mm -hmm. It's really difficult work. Sometimes people need medication and it works for them. Sometimes need, people need talk therapies and sometimes it's a mixture of everything. But everyone needs support. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I think for us to be more compassionate as a society, that if somebody is reaching out, mm -hmm. you you support them. But for you, who really kind of guided you through and who was there for you? Was um, it more of an online community or, you know, I know your family were amazing, but that kind of online support? Yeah, it was completely online. I'll be honest, it was it was almost 100% online. You know, Barry was working. Um, my mum at the time couldn't drive. So we live out in the countryside, which is about 30 minutes away from where my parents live. So she couldn't drive out to me. I had just had a C-section, so I couldn't drive. So again, and, that isolation. Yeah, um, and my sister had four kids, so she had she was up the wall <laughs> with her family. And um, so I was completely isolated. So at the height of uh, suffering with the anxiety, I found Twitter was my godsend. Um, I found an amazing network of people on Twitter. I would just post up saying I'm having a really bad day or explained just on a tweet what was happening to me and the, the amount of people that would come back and say, I understand what you're feeling. There was a kindness and love there. Amazing. Yeah. Ama there was no judgment. There was n I never got any feeling of, you know, someone saying, cop onto yourself, get over it, you're fine. Pull yourself together. Exactly. I, there was none of that because so many people do actually understand what you're going through. Um, and you will find people that can support you uh, and help you out, out of those really dark, dark days. 
and for me it was Twitter um, at the time. Now with, you know, I feel as though I am, I, I would say I'm like 98% recovered. Um, I, I think I'll always live with anxiety in my life. It's not uh, going to be as intense as it ever was because I'm, I'm not going to let myself get back there. I've learned an awful lot of how to actually manage it. But now, because I, I'm sharing my story and opening up and being honest about all of those horrendous days that I actually had, Instagram is now where I go. <laughs> um, and that's where I'm finding sharing my story is, is most positive um, because I find that that's where the mums are. That's where people need to hear this, these stories. They need to hear that someone else is going through or has gone through what they've what they're and, currently and recovered from it and yeah. you know and, there's and yeah a, gotten out of the, the dark end of it yeah yeah which is kind of amazing I, I like I love Instagram as well and I love kind of reading people's stories and I feel Twitter can be such a small kind mm. of microcosm that you don't get it can be hard to follow sometimes as well <laughs> yeah exactly because it's in reverse yeah. yeah but one of the other things f- for your recovery is I know that you kind of changed for yourself what the identity of mother was mm. that, you know, you have this, you know, picture perfect. We've said it before, but that you were able to change and be really, really honest about your that the super mom myth is nothing yeah. that you are super mom, but for different reasons. Yeah, I think. Oh, well, I think I had like a total midlife crisis <laughs> after uh, Devon was born, like she was six months old and I realised I don't have to have this image of motherhood in my head. I can be who I want to be. I can I can be me. Like when 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 you become a mum. So I was Geraldine. I quite liked who I was. Um and then Allegra came along and this other person started to encroach on my life and she sort of took over. You you'll be quite surprised when you are somebody's strong. mother as opposed to somebody. Yeah, yeah. I mean this new persona that you take is a lot stronger than your old one. I mean she's pretty feisty, <laughs> you know, mother. Um so I became this this new person. My personality didn't necessarily change but morphed into something bigger um and, and better in a way. But at the same time I was losing parts of me. So when Devon came along with everything that was happening to me, I was just like, I don't want to be so consumed by motherhood, by this identity. And, and you do feel there's a societal me. expectation to be, you know, kind and nurturing mm-hmm. and caring and you can't do that or say this and that, yeah. you know, you're supposed to become kind of half Mother Teresa, mm-hmm. you know, kind of figure, which is really frustrating. Well, apparently these days you're not allowed to say no. You're not allowed to shout at your kids. And there's judgment everywhere. Oh, massive. I mean, you know, <laughs> trying to get the kid into the trolley and she's having a tantrum and you know someone's looking at you going, oh, just stop your kid crying. I can't stop my kid crying. She doesn't want to get in the trolley, but I don't want to do the shopping with her running around the supermarket and you don't want that either. So, you know, you know people are looking at you and I'm, the judgment is there. I think it's always going to be there. But we kind of have to be bigger and better and stronger than the eyes that we see looking at us. Um, I think that's important for us as mums to realise that we can do all of this in a way that we want to do it. We don't have to conform to the formula of Yeah, the identity of motherhood should be as different as the mums that make it up, that it isn't just an identicate you know, Stepford wife kind of an image that there yeah. are lots of different exactly. super mums that exactly. we're all kind of super mums, to be honest. Oh, we're all doing it. We're all doing it. And it's so damn hard. Really is so hard. 
Um, and it's okay to say that we're finding it hard. It's okay to say there are days when I just want to run out of the house and let someone else do it. Um, I would say like the day that you want to just run away with the circus. Yeah. Like just see you now. Yeah. I'm off to be a trapeze artist. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I'll be back when I get this out And of I system. don't <laughs> think you expect that. No, you don't. You don't. You don't. You know, there's that picture perfect you know, image that you have of cute babies and lovely kids. I mean, you look through Instagram and you see these gorgeous pictures of these perfectly groomed kids. Um, and I actually love those images. I think they're beautiful. But that's not real motherhood. And, you know, you'll find a lot of Instagrammers and bloggers will will put up, you know, even I put up pictures that are filtered Um we uh, all do. Yeah. I mean, that's that's you know yeah. that's part uh, of it. For me, it's the stories. Uh, watching the stories on Instagram, that's where real motherhood is. Not necessarily on your grid, um, but it's in the captions. You know, it's it's in the words. Um, but we can get so caught up in the picture. Um, I guarantee you, my I cannot brush my kid's hair. You know, she won't let me. She won't let me brush her hair. She won't let me take the chocolate stains off her face. But I'm not going to put those pictures up on Instagram. Um, I'll put them up on my because stories. Because she will kill you when she's, she's, when she's, when she's <laughs> yeah, 18 exactly. and she realises. But, you know, I'll put up a video of, of Devin having a tantrum on, yes, on my stories. Yes, to show that this is... This is real life. This yeah. is how it is. You know, it is damn hard. Kids are not going to do what you want them to do. They're not robots. They're not machines. They're That's the people. funniest thing, isn't it? You think that you're going to have more influence than you do. Yeah. And actually, they are full. Like my eight month old, he is feisty. I mean, oh, he didn't yeah. lick it off the stones, obviously. But I mean, <laughs> we were on our first holiday and he is perfectly capable of shutting his mouth and refusing point blank at eight months old to have like a beautiful, organic, home cooked <laughs> dinner and just literally. Yeah. And I like I was kind of like, go you. But another side of me was like, oh, no, I can't believe this is starting already yeah. and that's they're the bits that aren't kind of nice to see but mm. are the real the real bits of it yeah Absolutely. and I suppose that's the message we want to want to send to those that are home that we're all super bums um, and your journey is your own and Geraldine thank you so much for being so open and honest about your story and thank you for all those at home for listening please do like and subscribe to the Motherboard podcast lastly don't forget to leave a review we'd love to hear your feedback see you next time Motherboard, proudly brought to you by familyfriendlyhq.ie.